Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalist Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. What is it? Thursday, September 30th, 2021. Man, I've lost track of time, dates, everything. Uh, Ever since I jetted out to Hollywood where I'm wearing my shades and just kind of leading that really super cool West Coast lifestyle as I wait to see if... uh, uh, wait for my uh, granddaughter to be born. I can't wait for that moment to happen. Um, but anyway, still doing the show, still dutifully doing the show. And to give you a sense of what's in the news today, I'm going to cite uh, something that just popped across uh, my um, news feed from WBEZ. Shout out to WBEZ and my old friend Hunter Kloss, uh, excellent journalist for WBEZ. And he wrote this, um, and this is kind of relevant to the conversation I'm about to have with my distinguished guest. About half of Americans support Biden's vaccine and testing mandates, poll finds. And here's the lead. About 51% of Americans say they approve of President Joe Biden's sweeping mandate that millions of workers should be vaccinated or face regular COVID testing, according to a new poll from the Associated Press, Nork Center for Public Affairs Research. About 34% disapprove and 14% hold neither opinion. I don't, the 14% always kills me. So confusing. I don't know. I'm going to watch the Bears play. Uh, Anyway, the poll poll also found Democrats overwhelmingly support the mandate while a majority of Republicans disapprove. The The point I'm making is a majority of the people support a mandate. And yet the Democrats struggle... They struggle. So they've got the people on their side on almost every issue, ladies and gentlemen, and they struggle. Uh, my beloved Democratic Party is just so bad at playing the game of politics. And we're facing a crisis as a result. And that's as good a time as ever to bring on my distinguished guest because he's got a lot of thoughts on this matter. Uh, so as I do with all bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce yourself. Hello, uh, my name is Miles Camp-Lassen. I'm a web editor at In These Times magazine, a local progressive magazine in Chicago, but we cover national issues, especially the labor movement and progressive politics. Um, 
also write for various publications, including uh, Jacobin Magazine, and love to come on here, uh, the Ben Jarofsky Show, and uh, talk about the uh, what's going on in the world. So happy to be here. Yeah, it's always a blast talking to Miles. He's a regular on this show. Uh, sometimes he's a bonus guest. Sometimes uh, he's on the regular uh, weekday show. And uh, Miles, uh, you said, I said, Miles, what do you want to talk about? And uh, you put it very succinctly. Uh, and now I can't find my notes. <laughs> Isn't that embarrassing? Oh, yeah. The dark heart of the American right. And uh, we spent about five minutes chatting, ladies and gentlemen. I wish we were uh, recording uh, that part of the conversation, but we'll re recreate it right now as much as you can. The dark heart of the American right. Nothing uh, less than sort of a, a coup, a longstanding coup. Uh, the, the Republicans are... Um, initiating and they have been since uh the last year or so with donald trump administration go into more detail miles as to what you were getting at when you said the dark heart of the american right there's really two um issues that have been uniting the conservative movement in america since basically since the 2020 election and uh, when it became clear that donald trump was not going to win enough votes to become the next president um, the Donald Trump doesn't lose, or at least he doesn't accept losing. That's been, you know, one of his, uh, animating principles since he, you know, stepped onto this earth and was raised by his dad, Fred Trump and Roy Cohn, his mentor. They all taught him never admit, uh, that you're wrong and certainly never admit that you've lost. So, um, it was never going to be uh, an easy way out of the situation of, you know, Trump losing the presidency and the Republican Party and the Republican electorate accepting that and moving on um, and making another plan. That said, I don't think many people would have fully expected exactly what uh, resulted from Trump losing. And the, the, those two issues that are uniting the Republican Party are one, um, a you know, disregard for democracy itself, certainly for democratic principles, which are once considered, you know, the founding principles of America. Just casting that aside and purely looking at politics as a game of power and seeing how to uh, defeat enemies and opponents, i.e. the Democrats, through any extra legal, extra parliamentary manner uh, necessary. And more, as we've gotten you know, farther away from both the election and certainly the storming of the Capitol uh, on January 6th, I think that's only come into clearer view, just how radicalized against democracy the Republican Party now is. Um, the other issue, though, is something else we talked about is the rights, and this is where you really get to the dark heart, is uh, the, how the right has embraced uh, white supremacy and uh, not just racism as we think of it as casual racism, but a real view of the world um, that puts white Americans as so-called legacy Americans. This is the kind of uh, rhetoric you hear from Tucker Carlson and uh, the like, other agitators on the right. They say, you know, a leg legacy Americans are being replaced and threatened uh, with replacement and their way of life their you know hold on the country is being threatened by non-white people um, coming into the country, getting more political power, what have you. And this is with the so-called great replacement theory. Um, that's not what like everyday Republican voters I think are talking about, but it is certainly what Fox viewers are 
uh, Fox News viewers are being uh, crammed down their heads when they're watching uh, the television. And it is what is motivating the mainstream establishment Republicans at this point because they're just waging full-on culture war, which is based out of a sense of white grievance. So that uh, anti-democratic, anti-electoral approach to politics and this white uh, supremacist-laden view of the world have left us with a truly radical uh, party here that is is working full speed to set up uh, the, the next election so that Democrats can essentially never win again, and so that they can uh, enact a pretty clearly right-wing reactionary agenda on the country. I mean, just look at the recent Supreme Court uh, rulings around uh, shutting down abortion rights in Texas as an example of the kind of vision that the right wants to um, put forward and have cover every everyone in this country, not just those in um, in so-called red states. So I think that understandably there's a lot of focus right now in the news and, you know, in the news cycle on what's going on with the Democratic Party fighting over this infrastructure bill and disar- Dems in disarray. But we shouldn't lose sight of just how dangerous um, and toxic this uh, movement on the right is. And there's been a number, we can get into it, but there's been a number of um, reasons for concern and alarm lately, um, none more so, I think, than this uh, John Eastman memo that uh, just came out this past week that kind of laid out the plan that um, was meant to steal the election. So, you know, they didn't stop the steal in 2020, um, but I think they might actually carry out the steal in 2022 or 2024, and I think that's something um, we all, on, especially on the left, but across the political spectrum, should be um, worried about and aware of. And what uh, Miles said was carry out the steal, S-T-E-A-L. Um, and uh, the John Eastman memo. Go a little more specifics, uh, Miles, about the John Eastman memo. Sure. So John Eastman, a lot of folks probably don't know who he is, probably for the best. He should be, you know, in the dustbin of history. But unfortunately, because we had um, a... Uh, whacked out far-right authoritarian President Donald Trump, he was looking to anybody that would, you know, uh, puff up his ego after he lost the election and tell him, no, sir, you know, you're really, there's, you have options and, you know, we believe in you and of course you didn't lose, what have you. So, so John Eastman is this guy, he's a far-right guy for sure, but he is a, a member of the Republican establishment. Let's be clear, he was a, you know, part of the Federalist Society, he actually clerked for uh, Clarence Thomas, now a a Supreme Court justice, um, right-wing one, of course. Uh, But he was part of this conservative lawyer who ended up working with Trump's legal team, um, especially after the election, in order to give them advice and uh, direct how they could deal with the fact that Trump lost without admitting that that he lost. And what we now know, based on um, a memo obtained by Uh, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa and then uh, CNN as well, um, that there was, you know, two-page version of this memo basically lays out this um, six-point rundown of how Mike Pence, then the vice president, could uh, overturn the election results and hand the presidency back to Donald Trump for another term. So it was not just some wacky, hairball scheme. This was clearly 
laid out. Um, and, you know, there's all these different mechani- mechanizations that he proposed to make that happen, basically saying that there were multiple groups of electors from about seven states. And therefore, you know, Pence would have to throw all of those electoral votes out. And what you'd end up with is Trump having more votes in the end than um, than than Biden, and that that would then swing the election to the House of Representatives to for them to decide. And at that point, um, Republicans, based on the people that would be voting under those terms in the House of Representatives, the Republicans would have power so that they would hand it to um, to Trump. So it's all absurd, but it was certainly being not only considered, you know, we now know that Trump himself was, you know, given this information just days before the um, storming of the Capitol on January 6th. And we remember, you know, what was Trump saying there? He was saying, Mike better do the right thing. You know, he better be a patriot uh, because he didn't, it wasn't just saying, you know, willy nilly, oh, Pence should just declare me president. He was saying Pence should follow the lines of this, uh, this this memo and carry out the plan that, that Eastman laid out. So uh, Eastman actually spoke at that rally before the storming of the Capitol, the putsch, as uh, many call it, because it was clearly an anti-democratic um, action meant to uh, take away the will of the people. Um, he was at that uh, uh, rally saying the same stuff, saying that, you know, we need to throw out these votes. We need to, you know, install Trump as the new... Uh, president. And that that memo is an example of the fact that it's not, uh, this isn't, people will associate January 6th, understandably, with like the Q shaman or these, you know, uh, very colorful characters that, oh, they were all deluded. But this was a coup that was um, started by those at the top of our society, you know, the powerful lawyers with the Federalist Society, not the, you know, working class Republicans that got duped into a big lie or something. The big lie was uh, concocted by the upper echelons of elite society um, in order to maintain the presidency of Trump. And I think that's just is of a pattern of a long line of, you know, the uh, elites, especially the economic elites in our country, working to give the um, right, uh, uh, the political right, as much power as possible, because it's going to ultimately benefit them in terms of retaining uh, economic political power for the, you know, current power elite in this country, the wealthiest um, and the, uh, the most powerful. So that's, I think, a, a very scary um, uh, update of terms of what was actually going on ahead of January 6th. And it's a warning because this is not going to be the last time. I don't think unless, you know, something, unless as Trump has said, he gets a bad phone call from his doctor. He's planning to run again in 2024. Um, and this same game plan, I mean, he already, he already came extremely close to becoming president again, even with losing, you know, millions of getting millions of votes less than, Joe Biden, the victor. So I think that the chances are pretty high that this is still um, an active and uh, live issue that everybody should be aware of. Uh, and, and furthermore, there was an article, a provocative article in the Washington Post uh, that you sent me. Uh, and I urge folks to read it. Robert Kagan wrote it. Uh, and it talks about, Robert Kagan talks about how Trump uh, yes, is definitely, as uh, Miles said, going to run again. It's pretty obvious that he's uh, determined to run again. 
and uh, he has the support of the majority of it seems pretty clear of Republican voters. So I don't think there'll be any difficulty in winning uh, the Republican nomination. Uh, and he has in place, and this is the part that, in addition that King uh, discusses, he has in place uh, people in various states uh, the elect who are in the process, who are assigned the job of counting votes uh, to do what he wanted uh, the Secretary of State in Georgia to do and the Republicans in Michigan to do and the Republicans in Pennsylvania to do is that's essentially throw out Democratic votes on the grounds that they're fraudulent. Uh, and if you throw out enough Democratic votes, it guarantees that Donald Trump will be victorious. And he pretty much just, just makes it clear, wherever black people live, that's where we're throwing out votes. So in the case of Michigan, we're throwing out Detroit. In the case of Pennsylvania, we're throwing out uh, Philly. In the case of Georgia, we're gonna throw out Atlanta. In the case of Arizona, we're gonna throw out Phoenix. And Miles, what Kagan lays out, and you go into, please go into some detail about this, he's got some flunkies that he's lining up uh, this time, not, not to say no to him when he says throw out the votes, but to say yes to him. Go into a little, a little more detail. Yeah, well, and I think that, that what you just uh, pointed to, Ben, is a good example of where those two issues overlap, the anti-democratic uh, approach to politics and the white supremacist worldview, because, you know, you obviously <laughs> think that if you, you know, you're trying to retain some kind of a white version of America, it's very easy to throw out votes from uh, communities of color because you don't consider them, you know, equal. So I, I think that that's, that's of a piece. But to your question, 10 of the 15 declared Republican candidates right now um, in five different swing states that are running for secretary of state, which is, you know, this is the position of Brad Roethlisberger in Georgia, who was, you know, the only person basically standing in the way of Trump just overturning the election results in Georgia. You know, we all remember those phone calls he made. Um, that's not uh, marginal anymore, you know, that approach, because 10 of these 15 declared GOP candidates have either said that the 2020 election was stolen outright, you know, that that's what they believe, or they've actually demanded that those in you know, that are currently in those positions, the authorities and the secretaries of state's offices, invalidate the results of those states and just overturn it. So in 10 out of 15, that's the vast majority and most likely of at least in a number of these states, that's Nevada, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Michigan. They all uh, they all could have secretaries of states that are willing to follow along with this plan. So it's not just at the level of you know what would have been Pence in the vice presidency. It's on a very local level. The people that are being installed are Trump um, allies and those that are all the way down with the plan because they're, they've bought into, even if whatever they believe on a personal level, they bought into the idea that saying the elections were stolen and trying to gin up public sentiment against democratic outcomes is for their benefit politically. And certainly for the benefit of whatever kind of politics they're trying to uh, enact, uh, across, uh, their state and their country. So it's really taken hold at a local level. And we just see, we can already see how Trump is interacting. He's, you know, he's uh, endorsing candidates that are say that they think the election was stolen. In Georgia, he's on a 
um, warpath against both Brian Kemp, who's done everything possible to cozy up to Trump, but still is on his bad side because somehow he didn't, in the end, hand the election there to Trump. Um, and Raffelsberger as well, as I said. So, you know, Trump is, is playing a role in this, but it's also just this is where the contemporary GOP is. This is the kind of candidates that are, you know, winning primaries. This is what uh, they've decided, the, you know, the, um, all the leaders of the Republican Party, they've decided to cozy up to this and treat it as their, um, you know, approach to how they're going to respond to losing the presidency. A lot of times, you know, when political parties, they, they have some kind of a reckoning, right? When, when, when they lose a presidency, it's very rare for a first-term president to lose in a midterm. You know, it doesn't happen very, it happened to Jimmy Carter, but it's um, happened to George H.W. Bush, but it doesn't happen very often. So um, you'd think that there might have been some reckoning, uh, but instead they've just doubled down on Trumpism. And I think it's because there's a real fear of what Trump can do. He's already shown himself to be powerful when it comes to primaries and local elections and being willing to um, do anything basically to get his way. So, um, yeah, so you, to your, uh, to your point, this is, as, as Kagan points out in that piece as well, this is really, um, taken hold and it seems to only be growing, um, more stronger. Also Republicans, they've proposed or passed, um, measures that would, I think there was like 16 states where they would shift the, um, uh, they would take elect the authority over the election away from the people like the secretary of state or the governor and put it in other people's hands. So even if, you know, these anti-democratic secretaries of state don't win in other states, including in Arizona, they're just saying, hey, we're just going to hand it to like the local Republicans, whoever they are, to be in charge of the elections. And that's kind of what happened with this ridiculous audit in Arizona. Um and people, what happened with that, to, to update listeners, what happened this past week is the results of that absurd Maricopa County, Arizona um, election audit. I say audit in um, quote marks because it wasn't really an audit. It was a private-led effort to, you know, to interrogate the election results. That found, they found that Biden actually won more votes than initially expected. So, you know, it seems like and they've wasted millions of dollars of taxpayer money to, to do that. It didn't change anything in terms of the election outcome. But what people have taken from it, what certainly the Republicans have taken from it, is that, oh, it exposed fraud. And it just showed how we have so much fraud and we need to crack down on fraud. That's just a precursor um, and a justification for carrying out these kind of anti-democratic um, uh, policies and versions of legislation across the country. So again, that's it's it's pretty alarming what's happening, and it's not being covered as much because you know the right is not as much in the um, mainstream of the news right now because Democrats are in power in Washington. But what's going on at the grassroots on the right is uh, is some scary stuff. And you know what's funny? Uh, that was a great uh, recitation, Miles. I appreciate it. I was listening to it. I was thinking. Um, in Illinois, and I follow uh, Illinois politics pretty closely, uh, and I follow already the governor's race in Illinois. Uh, and in Illinois, the Republican candidates uh, for governor who are vying for the opportunity uh, to replace uh, J.B. Pritzker play this game where they court the hardcore right, MAGA, that um, 
uh, swears allegiance to all of these efforts that you've just outlined. They court them. So like the vote was stolen. We have to change election law uh, to put Republicans in charge of the process so they can throw out Democratic votes. Unbelievable. Uh, and uh, even replacement theory, et cetera, and abortion, anti-abortion. And yet they try to send out vibrations uh, like beam out radio transmissions of messages to more uh, moderate, independent-minded voters. Oh, don't worry about all the rhetoric we're uh, espousing. Don't worry about uh, our MAGA extremisms and uh, the dark heart uh, because that doesn't really matter in Illinois. What matters in Illinois is that Democrats are corrupt and they raise your taxes and this is just, like, we don't really exist in that universe. And it's such a bizarre game, Miles, that the Republican Party is playing. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like, where they, to win, you have to get MAGA's votes to win the primary, be the nominee. To win the election, you have to bring in a few extra, because MAGA alone can't do it. And I'm just like, we're going to get to shaming voters. So I'm going to really, we'll get to that. But how, like, how clueless can the American public be, Miles, to, like, fall for Republican candidates who want you to ignore the far extreme, the far extremes uh, that control their party. It's really a bizarre schizophrenic game that they're playing. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I agree. I think that there's no... Uh, when you look at uh, liberal or Democratic-run states, especially Illinois, that gives you a good, a better indicator of kind of the, um, the issue with the, the Republicans are running into, which is seemingly would be um, an electoral nightmare for them and that they've concocted a situation in which the only people that can run and win in a lot of these primaries, certainly on local levels, are the most MAGA, you know, pro-Trump, uh, stop the steal, uh, big lie believing candidates you could uh, imagine. And those are the ones that are able to get the support of not just Trump, but now all these groups that have been grown around Trumpism, you know, the various um, fundraising efforts and uh, political support groups that are uh, that are operating uh, to push forward the Trump approach to, to Republican Party politics. So those are the ones that are winning the, uh, the primaries. But you're right, those are to turn off voters, you know, especially when you when it comes to statewide elections, but even in a lot of these, um, you know, districts that could flip either way. Uh, so that's where the anti-democratic stuff comes into play, because it's like they know that the, what they're offering is not what is going to win majority support. It's becoming an increasingly minoritarian party in large part because of demographic changes in the United States um, and the fact that the traditional older white voters for Republicans are both becoming, you know, naturally because they're growing 
you know, older and, um, and, and there's a new generation coming up. Um, there's less of those boats, but then also COVID is, you know, unfortunately led to the deaths of a lot of traditional older Republican voters. So the base for that kind of, uh, politics is waning and becoming, um, harder to get majority support out of. So they know that they can't win those elections. So the only uh, next step then is to declare those elections fraudulent and use anti-democratic measures to install themselves in power. And we haven't seen that happen in Illinois yet, thank goodness, because we have some strong um, election protections here in the state. And also, you know, the Democrats are largely in power across the state. But as I said, you look to other states like Georgia and Arizona, even Wisconsin, and that's not so much the case, you know, so you're going to see House candidates, Senate candidates, you know, local office holders run in the Trump mold. And then if they're not doing so well, just claim the election was rigged and shoot their shot, you know, to try to to overturn it. So you're right to point out, I think that that's, it's becoming more, uh, it's, it's voters still don't like it. And so some Republicans are trying to say, Hey, we're okay. You know, we just are traditional. Um, we just hate the liberals, you know, we're traditional Republican party politicians and kind of the Paul Ryan mold or something like that. But you can't escape the fact that it's still a party of Trump and, you know, look at where like Lindsey Graham is, you know, Lindsey Graham, senator from um, South Carolina, was a huge Trump critic. He is now defending Trump and Trumpism um, every chance he can, because he knows that's what's um, currently ascendant within his party. And it would be, you know, political suicide to, to go up against him. And the only people that are really going up against him now are the people that are about to retire from politics. It's not anybody who wants to have a future in the Republican Party. So that's kind of the the, the state of affairs, I, I think, that the right is in right now. Well, and Liz Cheney, she's, for what it's <laughs> worth, uh, she's uh, refusing to go down quietly. Uh We'll see what Adam Kinzinger does here in the state of Illinois. I want to get too local here with uh, Miles, but uh, the Democrats are probably, when they come out with their new congressional maps, we talked about this in an earlier show with the, the political know-it-alls, but the Democrats are probably going to put as many Republican uh, incumbents into the same district as they can in order to uh, maximize the Democratic vote and minimize the Republican vote, to which I say good for you as Republicans are doing that all over the country. And so this is my, this is my running... Um, a metaphor of for the rest of this football season, uh, and Miles already try. Uh, I already told it to you before we went on air, so I'll say it in this interview. Uh, the Republicans play the game the, like the Green Bay Packers play football, and the Democrats play the bear the game the way the Bears play football, which means they're freaking clueless, uh, and uh, they're afraid of their own shadows, and they run the same plays over and over again, even though those plays clearly don't work. The Chicago Bears go, I know. We've run the ball up the middle three times in a row and gained three yards. Let's try it again. And so that's kind of how the Democrats uh, play um, politics as a, compared to the Republicans. So, all right, which leads me to get to this. I'm extremely frustrated with where the Democrats are. Now, you just laid out very convincing fashion what the Republican strategy is. The Republican strategy, as you pointed out, 
is to just keep that base in line and uh, know that if that base uh, votes solidly the way they will because you're giving them exactly what they want to hear, uh, you can win the uh, the election by just stealing the uh, the election. Get your uh, flunkies who run the state counting apparatus to throw out Democratic vote. That's their strategy. They made it clear. Uh, Democratic strategy, I have no clue what it is, Miles. And we began the show, I began the show by reading a poll that shows a majority of Americans favor mandates. Mandates for the vaccine. They're like afraid of the vaccine. They don't want it to spread. They're smart enough to know that if you get the, they don't want COVID to spread. They're smart enough to know if you get the vaccination, that gives you a better shot of survive, not getting it, one, and two, if you do get it, surviving it. Most Americans have figured that out. And yet, <laughs> the Democrats are just like afraid. They, like, they don't, you know what I'm saying? They got the majority of the people with them. Miles is another case. It's just like the national health care and all the other things. They got the majority of the people behind them, but they're afraid to push it. So, do you share my frustration with the Democratic Party? Uh, and if not, please explain where I'm, what their strategy is that I'm missing so that I'll feel a little more optimistic about things. So far, it seems like the strategy is just to keep doing the same crap over and over and hope that somehow it's going to work, uh, <laughs> even though against all odds and when it has shown not to work again. A clear example is what's going on right now in Washington around this um, infrastructure reconciliation debate. Um, this has been, it's been clear for months that, you know, there was going to be, there's a conflict in, within the Democratic caucus over how much to spend or whether to have any investments in um, the actual Democratic agenda that the party ran on. Democrats right now hold a trifecta. That comes around about every 10 years in American politics traditionally, certainly for Democrats, maybe even less, you know, to have the White House, the Senate, and the, the House of Representatives all in Democratic control. So you get a shot, you know, and that shot's really narrow too because um, it's about to be 2022, you know, we're, we're, we're getting into the fall and pretty soon it's going to be an election year. Nothing gets done in election years. Very little gets done in the winter of a, you know, congressional term anyway. So the Republic, Republicans, what they did when they got into office in 2017, they put made their priorities really clear. They're going to elect or they're going to nominate and confirm as many federal judges as possible and, you know, obviously Supreme Court justices as well uh, to carry out a long-term reactionary uh, political agenda. And that's what Mitch McConnell's job was. That's why he considers his term as majority leader a success, because he had uh, got uh, an, an historic number of these right-wing judges confirmed. The second thing they were going to do was massively cut taxes on uh, billionaires, on the wealthiest Americans, and on corporations, um, who are, you know, the all the forces that tend to control uh, political life in America. Um, are you know the, the 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 wealthy and and corporate America? So that was their agenda, and they did it. They got it done. They passed a reconciliation bill that uh, 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 added nearly two trillion dollars to the deficit. Over eighty percent of the gains went to 
um, the wealthiest Americans. And they were all happy. They were celebrating it. And you know what happened, even though that's incredibly unpopular. Obviously, you know, you, if you look at the polls, what people want is to tax the rich, you know, not to cut taxes on the rich. But because it seemed like they were getting something done, approval actually went up. That was Trump's highest approval rating was right after they got that bill done. Because voters like to see that you're doing stuff, you know, when you get into office. Um, the Democrats have proposed a lot of really good things. And the American Rescue Plan that Biden um, signed into law early in his presidency did do a lot to mitigate some of the worst effects of the economic crisis that resulted from this um, god-awful pandemic. But their actual agenda is what is in this reconciliation bill. And observers, anybody watching what's going on in Washington has known for months that this is going to be the situation, right? That there's some intransigent senators that have not bought in and the the leadership is going to need to um, in, enforce some type of party loyalty to get people in line with the rest of the caucus to pass this stuff. And they are flailing. I mean, look at what's look at what's happening in Washington. Pelosi's saying one thing one day. He's just saying she's going to delink these bills. Now she's saying she's going to maybe pull them because... She doesn't have enough votes. It looks. It doesn't look like they know what the hell they're doing, and it certainly doesn't look like they're a party that is um, has a plan to enact an agenda. I'm on one hand, I'm incredibly pleased that there's in many ways the like left wing, the progressives, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party have um, gotten. All the forces, the Democratic leadership, from Nancy Pelosi to Chuck Schumer to Joe Biden, on board with passing this agenda that is contained within the reconciliation bill. It's whether it's you know child care, free college, free pre-K, um, negotiating uh, pharmaceutical drug prices um, to lower costs and to to, to get more um, availability. Uh, expanding Medicare, extending the child tax credit, finally getting um, paid family leave, something that the U.S. is the only developed country in the world doesn't have. Um, All these things are what Democrats ran on and won on in 2020, and it's all in this bill. And they can't even get, you know, a commitment from the caucus to to support it, even though, I mean, over 90 percent Democrats support it. But if this was Mitch McConnell running this thing, I think it would have already been passed. And it just goes to show, I mean, I, 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 I'm not, you know, whip counting, right? I'm not in Nancy Pelosi's position, but it's pretty clear that when Republicans are in power, they know how they're going to um, take care of their priorities. And Democrats are not uh, uh, being able, not showing themselves capable of uh, doing the same. They're, uh, uh, they're, relying on their offensive line and, you know, their rookie quarterback just keeps getting pummeled time and time again, basically. No, the, uh, what the Bears do is they uh, run the same plays regardless of who the quarterback is. So you could have some old veteran like Andy Dalton who's uh, immobile and, or, and you could have a fleet-footed rookie, uh, Justin Fields, and they're running the same play. <laughs> they're the most clueless contingent of football minds I've ever seen. And uh, I think that's the analogy I'm going to use. I'm going to write it in a column. Uh, I also feel, and I'll get your thoughts on this, when you were riffing about uh, Nancy Pelosi and Schumer, the Democrats run either against their base or away from their base. 
and this, you know, this goes back to Clinton, Obama, David Axelrod, Rahm Emanuel. Their attitude is we don't want to look too lefty. We don't want to look too partisan. We want to look somewhere in the middle. So we're going to run, we're going to run as though uh, we're the reasonable people and our base is the left-wing equivalent of racists and uh, Confederate lovers and Nazis. And that's what the Democratic Party does. They run away from their base. So they would, they would have nothing to do with you or me, Miles. Okay, I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, in these Times writer and an old reader writer, they would have nothing to do with us. And they would just make fun of our ideas and our base. And that's what the Dems do. And I don't know how you can have a successful political party if you are at war with really your base. And I consider the left, along with uh, black Americans, to be the base of the Democratic Party. Your reaction to what I just said? Oh, of course. This is one thing that, I mean, at any times I assigned a whole bunch of articles about this soon after the election, really, and, and before as well, because you'll remember um, before the 2020, November 2020 election, there was uh, reticence to do any uh, in-person outreach, you know, canvassing, because we were in the midst of this COVID pandemic, even though there were, especially in state, in, you know, warmer states, places like Georgia, there was uh, clear indications that, you know, there were safe ways, be outdoors, to knock on doors. Who was doing that? Who won Joe Biden, Georgia? It was the grassroots left-wing organizations that um, were turning out voters that were, and it, was, it, was, it was black voters, it was uh, progressive voters that were, um, that, that, that lifted Joe Biden up to the presidency. Same thing in Arizona with, um, with largely with Latino voters. And, and these groups are the base, as you said, and they're the ones that have been pushing all the elements that are of this agenda. So no doubt um, that uh, the Democrats and certainly President Biden owe their victories and their positions of power to the um, efforts of the you know, progressive base of the Democratic Party. That said, I do think that, you know, to at least Biden's credit, he's so far been at least publicly saying that he wants to get all this stuff done. And it's been some, you know, uh, minority of uh, members of Congress, especially those with economic financial stakes in um, the industries that the um, reconciliation bill would regulate, um, whether it's, you know, coal companies or pharmaceutical companies um, or banking uh, corporations, the, the, the uh, politicians that are getting money and being lobbied uh, by these groups are the ones that are, that are holding out. So I'll give some credit, you know, to, uh, to Biden for at least speaking out about that stuff publicly, but you're right. And proof's in pudding, you know, it's like, if you don't pass this stuff, then who cares? You know, you could, you could get all the credit you want for speaking out in favor of it. But when the right is in power, they tend to make sure that their, um, priorities, uh, get accomplished. And here's the other thing about, all of this stuff is that what it creates is a political crisis because voters look and they see, okay, I vote, I voted these guys in and they're not doing anything. We're not actually seeing any, um, 
accomplishments. We're not seeing progress. We're certainly not seeing the you know agenda that they ran on being implemented or enacted. And you know, as a result, voters for the most part aren't seeing their lives change in the same way they would if they started getting you know paid family leave or medical leave or childcare or free community college. All that stuff would you know people would see in their lives. It would change them. Um, that can't. That same can't be said of this uh, measly bipartisan infrastructure deal, which would, you know, repair some roads and bridges, which is great, but most of that wouldn't be seen for years, and that's not going to immediately impact the lives of, uh, of of working class voters. So, as a result of this, this this stalemate, basically, it creates the conditions for that same type of anti-democratic sentiment to flourish um, that is being stoked by the right. And look, this is what we saw. I mean, I'm not comparing, you know, Trump to um, the, you know, fascist forces of um, 20th century Europe. But if you look at what happened in these political crises in, you know, Italy in the 20s or Germany in the 30s, things, you know, there was no movement in politics and it created a, a conflict and basically the elite parts of society linked up with the right to smash the left because what was happening was, you know, voters were getting polarized into camps, you know, and, and, you know, citizens of these countries were to either be voting for, you know, socialists and communists or voting for hardcore right-wing parties. And we're starting to see more and more of that happen across Europe. And we're starting to see um, real polarization here in the U S as well. And it, it, you know, it, it, creates a, a, a ripe conditions for people who want to stamp out um, democratic rights uh, to um, go, you know, move into the vacuum that's created by the lack of actual political movement. So the longer that the Democrats fail to actually get anything done, that's, especially when it comes to voting rights, um, that the situation just becomes all the more tenuous for our democracy, I think. Yeah, all right. There's uh, really no way I can sugarcoat it because I, uh, I believe you're absolutely correct. I think we're really at a precarious moment uh, in American politics uh, for all the reasons that uh, you cited. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to ask you to, uh, if you're going to reconsider a position that you've taken on this show since you've been coming on the show. Definitely the podcast version of it. So I had a little fun with this in the reader this week for my newsletter. I talked about voter shaming, and I named three journalists who would be unnamed. Uh, but I did say that one was named Miles, and the other was named Mike, and the other was named Sarah. And they all wrote for in these times. I had a little fun with it. And, of course, one is uh, the man I'm talking to now, Miles Kenneth Lassen. Uh, and they have cautioned me down uh, for the last couple of years not to shame voters. Uh, particularly, we started off with Trump voters. Uh, we were talking about Trump voters in Michigan and Wisconsin, et cetera. Uh, and uh, very right, I think you, were, you had a great point that all three of you made uh, that the, to a certain degree it was the inadequacy of the Democratic uh, candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton in particular, 2016, and their platform uh, that caused as much problems uh, as Donald Trump. And so that turned off a lot of people. So you just stop shaming them, Ben, and you can win them over uh, by just being logical and listening to them and hearing them out. So I've kind of been wrestling with this one, the miles, because it goes against every instinct I have, which is to shame people. I don't even think it's shaming. I'm even trying to convince them. I just like pointing out the truth. But then I saw I, 51% of America favors mandates. And I'm looking at 
uh, LeBron James in the NBA, the leader of the NBA. He's effectively the most powerful person you could argue in the NBA. Adam Silver tied with the commissioner. A man who all when he steps on the court, he steps on the court to win. That's the only reason he's on the court. He's all about winning. And when he does a business deal, he's in it to win. And he's always putting his will out. That's what makes him so great. He's got a strong will. Uh, so he started the season. He's like, well, I got. they asked him about the mandate, about, about the vaccine. He goes, well, after I was very skeptical at first, but after doing much research, I decided to get vaccinated. But I'm not going to hold anybody. I'm not going to criticize any players who disagree with me. And I'm like, are you, where's the where's the man who takes the ball and just leads? Where's the LeBron James who is disgusted with J.R. Smith? I didn't see him showing such consideration and love for J.R. Smith, his teammate, when he forgot that there was, what, 14 seconds left or whatever? He didn't know what the score was in that playoff game. LeBron James was so mad at him, he was ready to throw him in. But when it comes to like Andrew Wiggins and Kyrie Irving and Bradley Beal who aren't getting the vaccine, he's like afraid of shaming them. So he's like, well, you know, they have their view and I have my view and I'm not going to try to impose my will. I don't know, Miles, this no shaming thing. This is where I'm going with this. Get react. It's going a little too far. Oh, yeah, I don't want to do anything that makes you feel bad for the position you have. Even though the position you have is so freaking stupid, it's jeopardizing the lives of people. That's my old man view of things. Please uh, tell me if you agree or if not, point out what your take is. Go ahead. I try to think of uh, politics kind of from the perspective of an organizer. And that's, I think, because I, you know, the background in, in, in doing political organizing, certainly plenty of, you know, door-to-door efforts. Um, and I, you know, have a stake in these political questions. I make no bones about that. You know, I, I am, believe in a democratic socialist vision for, you know, future of society. I think people should be guaranteed certain basic rights, um, such as education, housing, um, healthcare, and that our goal should be building the conditions in a society to make those things a reality. Um, and you know, it's why I'm on the left and, you know, part of a, a, a political movement that, 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 that's working to do that. I'm also a journalist and I try to, you know, call the shots as they come and, you know, try not to make any bones about that either. Um, But when you're, uh, when you're looking at, you know, the state of affairs, the eyes of somebody trying to organize people, when you, when you approach things just by judging people and, you know, the very, the very people who are, especially those with, you know, the least amount of power in our society, just like everyday working uh, people. I don't think that gets to the bigger issues that are driving the um, inequities in our society. Those inequities are being created by forces much more powerful than um, individual voters. And that is everything from a completely concentrated corporate media sector that uh, reinforces uh, elite 
uh, branded uh, news that is you know, meant to protect the certain power interests that exist in our society, whether that's, you know, pharmaceutical companies that have massive advertising arms and lobbying arms, um, or if it's, you know, just political media that is clearly intended to favor, you know, conservative uh, worldviews. That's what people are being fed all the time. And I think that it goes, it's part of uh, structural issues that need to be worked out in our society. I also think that um, when you look at our political system, we have this absurd, the only reason that uh, Trump was able to get close to, you know, carrying out some uh, and pulling off uh, steel of the election was because we have this ridiculous electoral college system. You know, we have a, we, we have a system right now where we have a U.S. Senate where in Wyoming, which has like half a million people, they have two senators, whereas California with 37 million some people, they also have two senators, right? Like there's huge inequities built within our political system. We have this electoral college that uh, can, in the past 20 years, has twice handed the election to candidates who did not win the most votes, Donald Trump and George W. Bush. Um, And under those conditions, I think, you know, we can focus our concern with the voting habits of individual people in individual places all we want. But until you start to actually, you know, change the political structures in our society that create the conditions under which, you know, all of these things take place, I don't think you're really working to build the more equitable, just society, but you're, you're rather just focusing on, you know, individual people. And it feels good to shame people in, in a way because we want to have, you know, a, a, we, we want to have our own worldview be uh, accepted and understood and reified and what have you. But, you know, changing actual political conditions and changing you know, people's material conditions requires going a step beyond that, I think. And, and and the people that need and deserve shaming are the ones that actually hold the power. You know, the, 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 the billionaires that are spending their fortunes to make sure that they're not, their taxes are not going to go up in any budget bill. Um, you know, the corporate media titans that are pushing um, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories at the same time they're, you know, fully vaccinated. Like, there's so many people that are not getting the shame that they deserve to get right now. So many people that hold so much power. I just personally feel like, you know, it's kind of a fool's errand to be focusing so much on the individual um, actions of voters when we know that just like what you said before, Ben, like, the majority of Americans even support a vaccine mandate, even with all this crazy anti-vax um, conspiracy stuff that's floating around on the web and on the, you know through conservative media. Look at the policies in the um, the reconciliation package, whether it's childcare or expanding Medicare, any of this stuff. It's huge support, way more than you would expect in a polarized society. You've got like eighty percent of people saying they want to expand Medicare to cover dental and vision and hearing that goes to show to me that like, you know, when it comes down to it, like voters do know that they they do have generally progressive views on how our society should change. It's just, they're not being offered up, uh, 
an actual political alternative that's giving that that's carrying those things out. And if the Democratic Party steps up and enacts this agenda, I think that they will be um, benefited, you know, at the polls and we won't have to shame as much. But that's on the people that are in positions of power. It's not so much on um, everyday voters. So I don't know. I'm, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, have uh, start a flame war with anybody that's, uh, you know, in the business of shaming because you could have the morally correct position. But if you want to, you know, change the way people act. The problem is, one one last thing I'll say on this is that I, I think that, you know, myself, as I said, socialist, I kind of have this materialist, you know, outlook on the world. Trump has managed to do something very different, whereas he's like be able to move beyond the very like people's basic material things and create himself as a stand in against all the forces that seem to be, um, you know, built up in the conservative imagination as the ones that are keeping down our freedom, whether it's, you know, the, uh, you know, queer people or socialists or um, the liberal media or any kind of establishment, like as much as Trump didn't um, carry out an agenda that would serve his constituents, you know, working class, whatever Trump and the Republicans claim their party serves, he was able to be a useful stand-in to be like, say, he's fighting against all of these other forces. Um, and he wasn't exposed as as much of a fraud as I think he should have been and still still should be. But in order to do that, you've got to provide him that alternative that I talked about. And I think that until that, that alternative presents itself, unfortunately, um, the, the right is much a- better able to capitalize on um, resentment in our politics than um, liberals or the left has been able to. And that's a problem that needs to be uh, fixed through through politics. So I hope that uh, the Democrats and people on the left are able to, to, to carry out that feat. Well, that was really good. I have to admit, it was. I found that convincing. I'm momentarily going to stop shaming. Twenty four hours. But I have to close with just a direct question. Wait. Didn't you wish that LeBron had gone after <laughs> the <laughs> Andrew Wiggins and Kyrie Irving like he went after JRS? But didn't you wish? He had done that, used his huge platform. He's got 50 million followers on Instagram. Don't you kind of wish that he'd gone after him hard? Yeah, well, and, and LeBron, to be clear, I mean, LeBron is a, you know, uh, esteemed member of, you know, the top tier of our society. So he's not exactly the person I'm saying. That said, he is a worker. I won't lie. I mean, he's part of the, the, the NBA union. He's not, you know, in, in necessarily in the ownership class. But... Um, but he's not, you know, I, I, I think you can shame LeBron all you want. I'm not trying to, you know, stop anybody from doing that. <laughs> okay. to, to, to be no, I wanted LeBron to shame. LeBron was the one who pulled his punch. Yeah. Well, here's the LeBron thing. LeBron could have shamed, and instead he pulled. He goes, well, you know, they got their view. I got my view. You know, J.R. Smith had his view about how many seconds was left on the clock. <laughs> I had my view, you know. I didn't see him say, oh, J.R. Smith had his view on the shot. He was, like, so mad. He was shaming J.R. Smith. 
That's shamed J.R. Smith. That's true. I would say that there's maybe a 12-dimensional chess, you know, perspective on the whole thing that's like LeBron knows, especially within, you know, certain segments of black community and you know, across the country, obviously on the white community too, but, you know, in terms of the NBA fan base, there's a lot of hesitancy um, that, you know, some of it is, is, is well-founded about, you know, mandates and, and vaccine stuff. And that he was trying to appeal to those people that have been, you know, the Nicki Minaj's, whatever, that are saying, oh, you do your research. He was kind of saying like, hey, I did the research and you should still do it to try to appeal to those people rather than taking a more, um, you know, direct approach of just saying, hey, if you haven't gotten the vaccine, you're screwed up or something. I mean, I think if you're looking for a better example of an NBA player talking about the vaccine, look at what Damian Lillard said, um, you know, in his media day. He was basically like, look, I respect people. He also said he respect people who want to, you know, do the research. But he was like, I need to protect my family and the people that I care about. And that's what this is about. It's not about me. It's about, you know, creating the conditions so that I can be around people and, um, and everybody can be safe. And so, you know, I think that the, the dollar dame is a, a better example of that stuff than, uh, than, than LeBron necessarily, but also, Hey, look into the, can I just really quick give a plug because our, uh, Chicago sky, uh, WNBA team right now, uh, going on a deep playoff run. They're playing the um, Connecticut Sun tonight, which is Thursday night. When listeners hear this, they'll probably be about to... I'm going to the game on Sunday. They're playing it back in Chicago here against uh, Connecticut. The WNBA is like 99% or like near 100% vaccinated. The NBA isn't anywhere close to that. So if we're really looking for an example of like a sports league that is doing vaccine... Um, you know, communication correctly. It is the it is the WNBA. So, all right, very good. That's as good a spot as uh, Eddie to leave it. That's a good shout out, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, kudos to the WNBA. They're leading the way as always. Uh, Miles Kempflaston, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. It's always a blast talking politics with you. I'm going to really do my best not to shame <laughs> at least for the next 24 hours. Uh, and uh, so that's Miles Kempflaston. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.